0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today, we look at what the Bible has to say about sin. And with that, and we will kind of like a Bible study, we'll be flipping through the Bible together, and some verses I'll be reading, but others I'll ask you to actually have you look at, very important, when we get to those passages, so that your eyes can focus and see yourself reading the scriptures along as I go. Uh, but I want to start off with a question. And the question is, what is the greatest threat to humanity today? Uh, people would answer that differently, depending upon who you ask in their worldview. Uh, what is the greatest threat to humanity today? Well, if you ask the world, the non-Christian world or just the secular world, or The TV world, CNN, The View, Oprah, all those talk shows, David Letterman, and all their guests. What is the greatest threat to humanity today? You'd get a variety of answers. You probably wouldn't get the answer that I would give or I think that the Bible clearly gives. What is the greatest threat to the human race today or to humanity today? You might get answers like global warming, because that's what Al Gore has been telling us for almost 20 years. Uh, Greatest threat. Others more and more are saying, well, they're not necessarily global warming, but environmental concerns. The environment is the greatest threat to humanity today. Some would even say uh, plastic grocery bags are the greatest threat to humanity today. And I am not kidding. Others would say, in light of the recent events last Thursday in Aurora, Colorado, where there was this horrific slaughter, gun Madman gone wild with his guns in the movie theater, killing over a dozen people and injuring over 70. Just an evil, wicked act. What's the greatest threat to humanity today? Whenever that happens, and it does happen unfortunately occasionally, then all these people that believe that guns are the worst thing in the world start using that as a political opportunity to ban guns. So some people would say guns are the greatest threat to humanity today. I would say guns aren't the greatest threat to humanity today. Uh, Some would say, well, it's a lack of health care. That's our greatest threat to humanity. Some would say it's a lack of education. It's the greatest threat. What we need is more education, free education, more information. That'll solve our problems. Others would actually say that religion is the greatest threat to humanity today. Bill Maher, the comedian slash talk show host, atheist. That's what he says. He wrote a book about it. And other best-selling Authors like Christopher Hitchens and other God-religion haters, they say that religion is the most damning force confronting humanity today. And then others would say poverty, and that's a perennial favorite. I would say that none of those are the greatest threat to humanity today or the greatest threat to any one of us individually. The Bible is clear. The greatest threat to humanity today, not even Satan himself, it is sin. Sin is the greatest threat to humanity And it's not just sin generically or sin out there or somebody else's sin that threatens me. My personal view is the greatest threat to me is my own sin. That's my personal view. But I would argue from Scripture today, and that's what we're going to look at, uh, what the Bible has to say about sin Sin is the greatest threat to humanity, and it has been for 6,000 years since Adam and Eve will see that clearly. Uh, So I came up with nine points here about sin. So let's go through those. And just by way of introduction, I want to define sin uh, according to the Bible. It's hard to define. Before I define it, just a reminder, or maybe bring to your awareness, there was a time in this culture, in American culture anyway, say 100, even 50 years ago, where people in the secular world would even use the word sin. But today, the word sin is not used in the secular world. It's anathema, actually, to use that word. So sin in our culture, for the most part, has been defined out of existence. And we're not supposed to talk about sin, as a matter of fact, Many things that historically were considered sin have been redefined and considered sin no more. Examples would be things like adultery. If you commit adultery, it's not called adultery anymore, which the Bible condemns and calls it adultery. It's called an affair. Rather glamorous term, isn't it? For an evil, wicked sin, adultery. But no, I had an affair. So it's polished over, redefined. Um, Other sins, homosexuality now is called a lifestyle. Alternative lifestyle, legitimate alternative lifestyle. Drunkenness, which the Bible condemns as a sin, is no longer called drunkenness. It's not called a sin. It's now been redefined as a a disease. So it went from being a theological sin to now a medical ailment that people have. Very common. Uh, Fornication is now referred to as dating at times. Um, Swearing. Cuss words. Blasphemy. Blasphemy taking God's name in vain, saying evil words. thats now It's not cussing and sin anymore. It's called self-expression. I was just expressing myself how I truly feel. These are all very common. That's even being done in American pulpits today where it's kind of hip and cool for the pastor to use occasional off-color words and even cuss words to relate to the people, relate to the sinner. I am not kidding. Selfishness is many times redefined as self-esteem. So those are just a sampling of examples where it is all pervasive in our culture, which wants to get away from Christianity, the Bible, religion, and as a result, get rid of sin. But we can't do that. Bible is clear. Uh, so here's a definition of sin. Uh, and it was hard to come up with a definition, and all theologians agree with that because in the Bible, sin isn't so much defined as it is described and illustrated. So there isn't this technical, ironclad definition that encompasses all of what we know to be true about sin. It's just all kinds of words and examples and illustrations of it and God's commentary on it and the effects of it in people's lives when they do it. So it's kind of a systematic approach. could be distilled down. and Here's my definition. Uh, sin is any... And this is—I didn't make this up. I got this from very uh, helpful Bible teachers. Sin is any moral evil. By moral evil, I mean sin is something that moral free agents do. Those who are able to make decisions and they're accountable for their decisions, like angels and human beings. That's what I mean by moral evil. Because there are other kind of things that we'd categorize as evil. But they're not really sin. Natural disasters. Earthquake. When an earthquake happens, that's not sin. You can't really point to somebody who caused the earthquake. So natural disasters aren't sin. They're terrible, but they're not sin. Sin in the Bible is always related to moral evil. Those who have a conscience, they have a will, they're accountable for their decisions, they're free moral agents, they're accountable to God, which would include humans and angels. That's why I said not animals. I don't care what you think about your kitty cat. Your kitty cat is not a person. Cute, but not a person. And animals do horrific things at times, but they're, they're not sinning when they do. My dog never sins, by the way. Um, so, sin is any moral evil, positive or negative. What I mean by that is all sins in the Bible fall into one of two categories. They are acts of commission, things you do that are wrong. God says, don't do this and you do it anyway. You deliberately, proactively do something against what God says. Don't lie and then you lie. That's an act of commission. It is an active, proactive action of sin. So those are acts of, are sins of commission. You commit a sin. Then there's sins of omission. I call them negative. So all sins are either positive or negative meaning acts of commission or omission, things you omit, things you fail to do, things you should do that you don't. God says do this and you don't. God says evangelize, you don't evangelize. God says pray, you don't pray. God says confess your sin, you don't confess your sin. It's something you don't do. So are there are sins that we do do, and there are sins uh, we're sinning as a result of something we didn't do. That's, those are All sins can be put broadly into those two categories. And the Bible, in addition to that, says all of these acts of commission and acts of Omission. Every human being is liable, culpable, guilty, and will be accountable for every sin they commit. Every single one of us is accountable for every sin that we commit. Uh, so if sin is any moral evil, positive or negative, known or unknown. Wow, this is kind of scary. There are sins that we know we do, right? Sometimes right away, sometimes even premeditated ahead of time. Sometimes we commit a sin we didn't We weren't thinking about it at the time. Somebody comes back and confronts us and said, that was sinful. And then the light goes on. Oh, yeah, it was. So in hindsight, we know about it. And then there are sins uh, that we're not even aware of at all. And we committed a sin and we didn't know it was wrong to do. We didn't know it was a sin. That's rare, but it's a reality. The whole book of Leviticus teaches on uh, God commanding the Israelites to provide sacrifices for unknown sins. Sins done in ignorance, really, is what it is. You're still guilty. I'm still guilty. We are still culpable. We're still accountable to God for sins that are committed in ignorance. And God provided Old Testament sacrifices that accounted for that category. So uh, sin is in an any moral evil, positive or negative, known or unknown, contrary to God's character, who He is, and also contrary to His will, what He has clearly revealed to us and what He requires of us. So that's a good summary definition of Sin. Uh, there is no one word used to define sin in the Bible, the Old Testament or New Testament. Rather, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of words to illustrate sin and describe it because it is so complex, it is so uh, variegated, and so many components and elements to sin. Uh, the, the words are almost countless that are used to describe sin, all the way from fall, stumble, wickedness, wrongdoing, lust, error, transgression, trespass, Iniquity, fault, guilt, unrighteousness, blameworthy, vile, shameful, immorality, rebellion, disobedience. I mean, I could just go on and on. And these are all the words all referring to the same thing. Sin. The most common word used in the Bible to describe sin is to fall short. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament... Hamartia, to shoot an arrow and to fall short of the target. That is the most common umbrella term used for sin. To fall short of God's standard of perfection, holiness, and righteousness, we fall short of God's required standard. So that's a good umbrella term. And that's why the study of sin is called hamartiology, hamartia, where that comes from. So that's a definition of sin. So let's go ahead and look at these nine uh, just summary points out of the bible just to uh, give us context to think through our theology of sin when was the last time you thought through your own theology of sin and then personalized it so in today's study what i want you to do and what i'm trying to do as we think through sin i want you to think about yourself in the doctrine of sin in other words today i want this to be your biography as i wrote this all week said, this is my autobiography when's the last time you gave your resume quoted your biography? And one of the first things you said is, well, tell us about yourself and your uh, history and your biography. Well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Because that should be like one of the main components in our biography if you're a Christian. So and even if you're not a Christian and you're here today, this is your biography as well. This is a biography of Christians and non-Christians, at least most of these points. If you're a Christian, you're a sinner saved by grace. If you're not a Christian, you're a sinner. Who needs to be saved by grace? So let's go ahead and look at our biography. Personalize it. I don't want you elbowing your spouse during the sermon or pointing at your sibling. That's you. Or another person in the church. That's you. Personalize it. This is your own. This is my own biography. Point number one, every person is a sinner by nature and choice. Every person is a sinner by nature and by choice. Uh, 1 Kings 8.46, that's King Solomon is saying this amazing prayer. It's one of the longest prayers in the Bible in 1 Kings 8, dedicating the temple, 1000 B.C. Uh, king Solomon, third king of Israel after David, and he's praying to the God of heaven. He, he knew the Lord. He knew Yahweh personally, and, and he prophetically prayed this prayer and said that statement, that there is no one who does not sin. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. It's saying it it negatively, but positively it's every person sins without exception. That's what it means. You, me, every single one of us here. That's what we all have in common today is we sin, we are sinners. Whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, regardless of your age, gender, where you came from, your education, we are all sinners. Not one of us bypasses sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of god if you got your bible look at first john chapter one that's in the back of your bible just before the book of revelation three little epistles there first john second john and third john and first john written by john the apostle at the end of his life when he was a an old man in the spirit of god revealed this information to him he made two amazing powerful true statements about Sin, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10. He says, if we... Notice, he's a Christian and he's talking to Christians. If we as Christians, is how it could be understood, if we say that we have no sin, there are people who say they have no sin. It is not uncommon when you're talking to an unbeliever or if you're doing evangelism or you're just in a discussion and you start talking about sin. God must punish sin with death and hell, and then many times uh, an unbeliever will say, "Well, I'm not a, I'm not a sinner. I haven't killed, any, I haven't murdered anybody." So it's not uncommon for people to say that. There are even Christians who say they don't sin because of their theology; they really believe that. But John says, "If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves." See, you're blinded by your own sin. If you think you don't sin and aren't susceptible to sin, uh, you're being deceived, probably by your own sin. Could be by Satan himself. If you say that, the truth is not in you. That's a false statement. Verse ten: If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and His word is not in us. So to deny the reality of sin, plainly you are deceived. You're a liar. You're not speaking in accordance with truth. You're not thinking right. So we need to be uh, have a solid foundation here and understand that every person is a sinner. We are sinners. Uh, The Bible is clear about that. And I put two things there. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Uh, So sinning is a, a deliberate act. It's an act of the will. It's something that we are accountable and responsible for. As a result, you can't say, well, that person made me sin. Or the devil made me sin. That's what... Eve tried to do that. And God said, no, I don't think so. So when we sin, we're responsible for our own sin. Here's a statement that all of us... It would be true about us. Every time... You commit a sin, you are to blame. Every time I commit a sin, I am to blame. Can't blame it on your circumstances, your lack of provisions, your upbringing, your environment, your education, your uh, hormones, your physiology, your DNA. Can't do that. Clearly, when you commit a sin, you are responsible. When I commit a sin, I am responsible. It's a clear teaching of Scripture. And that's why I say every person is a sinner by choice. God holds us accountable as such. We talked about Mormonism, how their theology says that a person becomes a sinner at age eight. So they put an age on it, even though there's no age in the Bible. And uh, the Bible says, no, uh, you don't become a sinner at a certain age. We are sinners by nature. It's in our very being. And we're going to look at that at the next point as well. In Psalm 51, if you want to get your finger in Psalm 51, we've got to read that passage there. Because it corresponds to points one and two. Uh, so, wow, I'm a sinner. I do acts of sin. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why am I doing these sins? Some of these sins I hate to do. I don't want to do them. I don't like this feeling. I don't like uh, this desire. Why, why am I doing this? Well, it's because it's in your very nature of who you are. You don't become a sinner when you first commit a sin. You sin because you already are a sinner. It's, not, it's like a, a dog doesn't become a dog when he starts barking. A dog will bark because he's a dog. It's in his very nature. It's like the cute little one-month-old lioness, lion, cub. And it looks almost like a kitty cat. And when they're only one month old, you can cuddle them and snuggle them and hug them and hold them in your lap. And some people actually do that and they take them into their house and they try to raise it as a pet. And it's a cute little fluffy little thing. And its it's, parents are huge full grown lions. But it has, even though it's cute and fluffy and little, it has the nature of a killer lion. And as it grows and gets older and mature, manifestations of that true nature are going to come out in that lion. And it is not uncommon for those cute little cuddly lions to turn on their owners and to devour and have them for lunch. And the same with their lion tamers. It happens all the time. Because they forget about the true nature of the lion. It is vicious and it will not change. And that is true of human beings. Our nature is sinful, it will not change. And even when we've got even when we're small and cute little babies and two months old and oh they're coochie coochie, they're so cute, those little babies, and they're baby fat and they're smiling and giggle giggle and They're so innocent. That's true. What is also true is that on the inside, they have this horribly wicked, dark, fallen, rebellious, evil, damning nature that at some point is going to begin to manifest itself in their life as they grow older. As early as two years old and maybe even earlier when the manifestations of that horrible self-centered sin comes out with those three vocabulary words that they seem to learn themselves. Gimme! No! Mine! That's a revelation of what's going on the inside. Absolute, corrupt, self-centered nature. And they were born with that nature. And that's why we sin. Why do we sin? Because we have a sinful nature. And that's true of every single human being. The only human being in the history of the world that was not true of was Jesus Christ Christ who was God in a body, born of a virgin, bypassed the curse of sin because he didn't have a human father. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and he was virgin born. Plus, he was God in a body. God cannot sin. Jesus never sinned. He's the only human being that bypassed sinning by act of choice, sinning by virtue of his nature. So every person is a sinner by nature and by choice, and that can't be changed. Number two, every person is born a sinner and separated from God. So, wow, I've got a sin nature. When did I get this sin nature? How did I get this sin nature? This is horrible. This is bad news. By the way, this is something you have to struggle with as a Christian, especially if you grow up in a Christian home from the time you are born. You're going to go through certain phases and ages in your life where this is going to confront you as a harsh reality, and you have to process this think it through and assimilate it into your own life regarding your own Christian identity from the time you're one till you're 31. Because as you get older, you're going to see more and more manifestations of your sin nature come out that you didn't see when you were younger. I don't know too many two-year-old alcoholics. But there are people who are born because of their sin nature. Their sin nature will manifest itself with a propensity or a vulnerability to drunkenness. Just That's the way it is. And as they get older, they're going to realize, wow, when did I all of a sudden become tempted by alcohol? And I could pick every conceivable sin, whether it was lying or some uh, deviant behavior or whatever. It's going to manifest itself in all of our lives. And sometimes you're going to be caught off guard. Wow, when did I start feeling this way? That's reality. And we have to search the Scriptures, ask God for wisdom and come to a true acceptance of our own biography that we are sinners by choice and even by nature. Very frustrating. Number two, every person is born a sinner, separated from God. Let's look at Psalm 51. So how did I get this horrible sin nature that I don't want? Well, you were born with it, unfortunately. Well, Where did it come from? Well, it came from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And you're not just born with it. Actually, we were conceived in sin. At the time of conception, in the womb, we inherited a sin nature, every single one of us. And that's clear in Psalm fifty one. Psalm fifty one is a prayer of David where he's confessing his sin of adultery to God. He prayed it out loud and then he wrote it down. And he says, God be gracious to me. By the way, he is a believer. And he's saying, God be gracious to me. So he's a he's a believer yet he's a sinner. He's a believer in need of ongoing forgiveness. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is aware that he is sinful. He is wicked. This is on the heels of committing adultery, being a compromiser, committing murder as the king of Israel. Yet he's a man of God. He knows God. He loves God. And yet he's been confronted with his own wicked, evil sin. And he's been overwhelmed by it for a year by guilt. It's been weighing him down, pushing him down, and now he knows he is accountable to God for his sin. He deserves death and he knows that he's pleading with a gracious, merciful God, Yahweh, that he knows personally. He knows that Yahweh is a forgiving, merciful God, and he's pleading for this forgiveness. Then after he admits that he's a sinner and that he committed a specific act of sin worthy of death... He goes on into verse 5 to tell us, how did you become this way, David? How, did you be, how and when did you become a sinner? Why did you commit this horrific act of adultery and murder? Well, because it's in His nature. That's verse 5. Behold. That is a dramatic statement. Behold. Wow. Get this. Take note of this. This is highly significant. This is shocking, but it is true. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That's literally referring to the birth process. I was born a sinner. Not only that, the parallelism in the second part of verse 5 and in sin, my mother conceived me. Literally, at the point of conception, I inherited a sin nature. So, why do I have a sin nature? Well, because I had it at birth, I had it at conception. I was conceived with a sin nature as a person. And then as I get older, manifestations of that sin leak out all over the place. So every person is born a sinner, as a result, separated from God. So we're born, and now we'll go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Every human being born into this world, on the one hand, is made in the image of God, which makes us valuable in the eyes of God as His creatures. On the other hand, we're fallen creatures, And we inherit a sin nature. Where did that come from? Well, it came from Adam and Eve, and we'll, uh, read a verse in just a second, but every person that is born, this is their biography, this is their reality, Ephesians 2.1, and he's telling Christians, reminding them of their, what they used to be like before they got saved. You were, before you became a Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you are not a Christian, you are spiritually dead. That's what he means. So anybody here that is not a Christian today, according to Paul, you are spiritually dead. Somebody who's dead can't respond to external stimuli. Meaning, if you're not a Christian, you can't respond appropriately to God, to His Spirit, to truth. You can do nothing on your own. You can't earn your way to heaven. You are spiritually dead. You are in the darkness. And he's telling Christians, you used to be that way before you got saved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And if you're totally dead, you can't save yourself. You can't do anything. You are helpless. Bad news, isn't it? And when you were dead as an unbeliever, you used to formally walk or live your life according to the course of this world, the sinful, wicked world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan was your God, Even though whether you realize it or not, he was your God because you didn't know the true God. This is quite an indictment, but it is true. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So every person that's born in this world is born separated from God. You're not born a child of God god is not your father when you're born into this world satan is your father satan was my father when i was born into this world because i was born with a sin nature separated from god in darkness i needed a savior i didn't know god and that's why jesus said in john chapter 3 because you are a sinner born a sinner conceived a sinner born spiritually dead born separated from god born an enemy of god a child of wrath condemned by god what you need you need to be born again and that's what jesus told Nicodemus. You need to be reborn, spiritually reborn, so that you are no longer spiritually dead. So if you are not a Christian, Jesus says to you, you must be born again. And those of you who are Christians, thank God that God moved in our life and in your life with the gospel to allow us to be born again and regenerated so that we are no longer spiritually dead. Isn't that awesome? That is the gift of salvation. Well, wow, how do we get into this mess? Well, it came from Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve sinless he said don't eat from this tree and the day that you eat from that tree if you do you will die adam and eve ate from that tree they were condemned by god and one of the punishments according to genesis chapter 3 is it says that god cursed adam genesis three seventeen. god cursed adam and every human being that came from the loins of adam and eve ever since has been born separated from god coming out of the womb as a sinner, spiritually blind and spiritually dead, in need of new birth through Jesus Christ. Every single person for 6,000 years running now. It all came from Adam and Eve. And that's what the Bible says. And that's why, so the event of it is in Genesis 2 and 3, or Genesis 3. The theology of it is in Romans 5. Where in Romans 5.12, it just simply says that sin entered the world through Adam. And through sin came death, and death spread to all people. So, why do I have a sin nature? How did I get this way? It came from Adam and Eve and the curse 6,000 years ago. So every person is born a sinner and separated from God in need of salvation to be born again. Number three, we cannot overcome our own sin. We can't. Why? Well, we're spiritually dead. Somebody's dead, they can't help themselves. They can't give themselves CPR. They can't take themselves to the hospital, they're dead. And that's what we were, spiritual zombies, if you will, totally helpless. Jeremiah speaks to this in Jeremiah 13 where he's talking about the sin nature of man and that we can't change ourselves. And he he uses the analogy, he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? In that time, in Jeremiah's day, Ethiopians were from an area of the world where their skin was black. These were black people. Moses married an Ethiopian woman. She was probably a black woman. Some people were prejudiced towards Moses for doing that. But he's using Ethiopians as an example. He could have said any color. Can the can white people change their skin? Can Chinese people change the color of their skin? Can black Ethiopian people change their skin? Well, they can't. Because it's in their nature. It's in their DNA. Unchangeable. Then also, so also is true. and It's a rhetorical statement. Then also, you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, he's just saying... Sinners can't change themselves. You can't change your own nature. That's supernatural. It comes from God and God alone. And there are plenty of people around the world doing all kinds of things. And when they're, if they're honest with themselves, they know they are evil. They know they are wicked. They know their own hearts. They don't like it. They want to change. They try to change and they do all kinds of things to change. Whether it's alcohol or yoga or biofeedback or the latest thing. That the world has to offer is they're trying to change themselves because they don't like themselves. And this is true of many white, uh, true why many people sometimes in Hollywood, they commit suicide. Why did they commit suicide? Because they were depressed. They didn't like themselves. And it was secretive going on in their own heart. And they tried to shield it from everybody. But the Bible gives a clear diagnosis of what was going on. It's the battle of the soul. But you can't change yourself. Only God from the outside supernaturally can change his soul and deal with the problem of sin. Which takes us to number four. All sin is primarily against God. Go back to Psalm 51 because we were, we were there where David is confessing his sin. So here's King David. And this prayer was written as a result. This is a year after he committed his sin. At the time, he was already married and then he lusted after a woman who was not his wife but belonged to somebody else. He was married to Uriah, a man in his army. And then he had adultery with Bathsheba. And then he was in denial about it. Weeks, maybe months. Then his friend and prophet and counselor had to confront him. Say, David, you're a liar. You're trying to hide your sin. You committed adultery. Not only did he commit adultery he ended up having Bathsheba's husband murdered, which in essence is is murder by David himself. And so for, for weeks and months, David is trying to hide the sin of adultery and murder. And here he's a believer. He knows God. But he can't run away from his guilt as God is pressing down on him with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, weighing him down, and then finally with the confrontation of Nathan, David admits what he did. I did. I repent. I admit it. I sinned, God forgive me. And that's what this prayer is. Is when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. So he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his wife, David did. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband. And many other people he sinned against. But first and foremost, who David sinned against was God himself. Primarily and ultimately his sin was against God, the creator. That's why number four I put all sin is primarily against God. Because notice what David said, uh, as he's confessing his sin in verse four. Against you, he's talking to God. Against you, God, and you only I have sinned. Against you, when he says you only, you primarily, you ultimately, you are the creator. You are the judge. You owned Uriah and I killed him. You owned Bathsheba and I ruined her marriage. You sanctioned my marriage and I've ruined that. It all belongs to You, God. You and You alone I have sinned against. And when we acknowledge our sin, that's how we need to pray. First and foremost, we sin against God when we sin anywhere against anybody. The prodigal son who told his dad, I'm 19, I'm out of here. Give me my bank account. See ya. Then he went and lived a profligate, sinful life for who knows how long. He sinned against a lot of people. But when he repented, he came back and he made this amazing statement. Even though he sinned against a lot of people, sinned against his brother and everybody else. Luke fifteen eighteen, he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I have, first and foremost, I have sinned against heaven. First and foremost, I have sinned against God. So personalize that in your own life. Think about Did you sin this week? I know I did. And it was a sin, first and foremost, against God. This needs to be our own prayer. Let's go on to number five. God is not the author of sin. People ask that question. Well, where did sin come from? I mean, He created Adam and Eve without sin. And then they sinned. And yet they were tempted by the devil. So the devil was a sinner. But apparently the devil was created originally without sin. But then we see the devil is tempting others to sin. And so the devil must have been a sinner himself. And so... Maybe the devil was the first free agent to sin, yet God created the devil, so therefore God's to blame because he's the one that created the potential for evil, therefore God is responsible for creating sin and evil. That's how people, that's how humans reason, and that's wrong reasoning. You can't pin sin on God. The Bible's clear about that. I could read a lot of verses, but I just wanted to read James chapter 1. God is not the author of sin. God never condones sin. God has nothing to do with sin. It is impossible for God to sin, by the way, because he is holy. Holy, holy, with respect to His very nature. Holiness is the polar opposite of sin and evil. God has nothing to do with sin or wickedness. Can't tolerate it. Has no part of His being whatsoever. James is clear about that. in James chapter 1.13, talking about, well, where does sin come from when we do it? Well, the Holy Spirit, through James, tells us, well, when we sin, we are responsible for it. Can't blame God. Can't blame the devil. Can't blame somebody else. Verse 13, let no one say, and this is actually, let no Christian say, let no Christian say when he is tempted, but it applies to everybody. Let no person say when they are tempted, I'm being tempted by God. It's God's fault. You can't do that. It's illegitimate. It's almost, that's blasphemy. Why? For God cannot be tempted by evil, and God Himself does not tempt anyone with evil. We are personally responsible, verse 14, but each person, each sinner is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by their own lust. 100% our responsibility absolutely can't even think about blaming God for sin, tempting to sin, or being the author of sin. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't give us all the information about the ultimate origin of sin, but we have everything we need to know about it, which takes us to number six regarding God and sin. God hates sin and must punish sin with death. Yeah, I did say hate. Strong word. But that's not my word. That's... The word used in the Bible. God hates sin. And God must punish sin because He is holy and sinless. He despises sin. Did you know God gets angry over sin? Jesus was incarnate love. But if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus got angry at times. And 100% of the time when Jesus got angry, somehow it was directly related to sin. God gets angry at sin. God hates sin. God must punish sin. God punishes sin with death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. that's the bad news. There is good news coming by the way. Uh, I put psalm five actually i want I want to read Psalm five if you go there in your uh, middle of your Bible. Well, I thought God was love, yeah, God is love. God is love, and God is good. And because God is good, God hates what's bad. And what's bad is sin. So it's good for God to hate sin. It's good for God to punish sin. In Psalm 5, it says the Psalm of David, King David, uh, verse 4, he's praying to God, and through the Holy Spirit he says, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. God doesn't like evil. He doesn't think it's funny. He's not entertained by it. I don't know why Christians are entertained by evil and sin, but we go to movies and pay big bucks and pay the movie stars to sin for us for our entertainment. doesn't entertain God. You're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. See, there it is. God has nothing to do with evil. Verse 5, The boastful shall not stand before God's eyes. God, you hate all who do iniquity. God hates sin. What well, thought God loved the world. Well, He does. God loves the world. He loves His creation. He wants them to repent of their sin and He hates their sin. He hates evildoers. He hates those given over to sin and wickedness and evil. God, You hate all who do iniquity. God abhors the man of bloodshed. God abhors the man of deceit. God abhors the liar. Strong words. God hates sin. He must punish it with death. Well, what about Jesus? Well, if you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 sometime, I'm not going to go to it, it says that when Jesus returns, He is angry. His eyes are a flame of fire. He has a sword. And when He returns, according to 2 Thessalonians 1, He's going to take vengeance on His enemies. And His enemies are those who continue to live in sin and perpetuate sin. And Jesus is mad. He is mad at sin. He must punish it. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. He is God. And He's going to deal with it. Jesus hates sin and must punish it with death so if you've committed an act of sin and i've committed an act of sin i deserve death that's what the bible says the wages of sin is death i have committed a sin many in my life i deserve death by god physical spiritual and eternal there will be no justice if my sin is not punished by god and the good news is is that god has not just created people and created them with the ability to make choices and those choices lead to compromised lives and sin. God has also provided salvation for these sinners, recovery for these sinners. A substitutionary sacrifice for these sinners. God's not going to let me get away with my sin. God actually is going to punish my sin. I believe God has already punished my sin. He's punished it with death. And that's point number seven. Jesus was punished by the Father for our sin. Jesus is God. Before the world was created, Jesus, the Holy Spirit and God the Father, existed as the triune God of the universe. They created the world. They made humans in their image. Jesus did not have a body at the time before creation. Jesus came down to this earth that He created that sinned and compromised and was fallen and deserved death. He came down to this earth that He created and took on a human body. And in his body, he was the God-man. He was eternal God in that body. And he was born for one purpose. It was, he was born to die, to be punished on a cross, to be punished by God the Father for the sins of the world that deserved death. That is the message of the New Testament. That is the meaning of Jesus' coming. That is the reality of Christianity. Jesus came to die for sinners as their substitute that's what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Lived the perfect life as God in a body. Went to the cross. As a matter of fact, planned in eternity past to go to the cross. Was arrested, executed, nails in His hands, nails in His feet. God the Father for six hours unleashed His holy wrath on Jesus while Jesus was on the cross, punishing Jesus for the sins of the world. That's what Isaiah 53 verse 6 says. That God's wrath was poured out on Jesus as a substitute for sinners. So, I'm a sinner. I deserve death. Physical, spiritual, and eternal. Jesus came down, died for me 2,000 years ago, absorbed the wrath of God the Father in my place so that my sin was punished. God was appeased. He punished sin. He did it on a perfect substitute, Jesus. And because I believed that and asked Jesus to be my Savior and Lord, I am forgiven of all of my sin, past, present, and future, by virtue of God the Father, punishing Jesus Christ. That is God's solution for dealing with sin. It is the only way that you can be forgiven of your sin. It is the only way that you can be reconciled to God so that he's no longer your enemy and you're no longer a child of wrath. It's called the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's good news about it, not only are all your sins forgiven, we don't have to do anything we can't do anything we can't work to earn our salvation jesus christ did all the work god the father did all the work the holy spirit does all the work in this whole transaction of saving sinners it is by grace through faith apart from works and that's that's huge but those are the implications of number seven jesus was punished by the father for our sins all of our sins go on to number eight So when you become a Christian, God forgives you of your sin. When does He forgive you? Immediately, the moment you become a Christian. When you understand the Gospel and you talk to God and you pray to Him, God, please forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. I believe that Jesus Christ was the substitute for my sin. I believe that Jesus was punished for me. He died. He was buried. He rose again. Lord Jesus, save me. And if you really believe that, in that moment of time, God will save you of all of your sins. Totally forgive you. Legally. One thing God doesn't do at that time is He does not eradicate or eliminate your sin nature as a human. So every single Christian, even though legally forgiven of our sins, we still have a sin nature inside of us. And our sin nature, it is yucky. It is yucky. Go to Romans chapter 14, I mean, uh, chapter 7, an important passage, and I want to read it. Again, this is a biography of every Christian. And this is probably the most important passage we want to read this morning. If you don't get anything out of this other than Romans 7, 14-25, then it was worth it. Romans 7, 14-25. The Apostle Paul, at the height of his ministry, he's born again. He knows God. He's an Apostle. He is forgiven of all of his sin. Legally speaking, as God looks down from heaven, practically speaking, he still has a sin nature. Sin is still in him. And he still struggles and battles with sin. And it is nagging at him. It makes him feel guilty. He hates it. He feels disgusting at times. He feels yucky. He's tired of it. He wants to get rid of it. And that's the battle of every Christian. So look at your biography and my biography in Romans 7, 14-25 and see if you can identify with the Apostle Paul if you feel like this frequently as a Christian. Paul says, For we know that the law, God's Scripture, is spiritual. But I as a fallen human, am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. He's talking about a sin nature that he can't escape until he dies. Verse 15, For what I am doing I do not understand. He's talking about when I do sinful things, I don't get it. I don't want to sin, but I sin. I'm conflicted. For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. See? He is engaged in sinful practice, whatever it is. I don't know what Paul's sin was, but it was a reality. He hated it. It was contrary to what he knew was right. It was even contrary to his desire to want to do right. Verse 16, check this out. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, sin, I agree with God's law. Scripture confessing the law is good. God is good. Scripture is good. The fact that the Bible condemns sin is good. Even though I'm a sinner, I feel like a hypocrite. Verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it. When he says, I'm not the one doing it, the redeemed me, the born again me, the Jesus and the Holy Spirit living in me, me, is not the one doing it. It's the old me, the one that's still strangled by my old sin nature. But sin which dwells in me. That's a very confusing statement. Verse 17, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. See, he's being honest. Now, we, every single one of us should say this about, tell us about yourself. Well, according to verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. I thought about doing that in times past when I went for pastoral interviews from churches. Tell us your greatest weakness. Oh, it's right here. It's published for the whole world to see. Romans 7, 18. Nothing good dwells in me. Oh, I don't think we want to hire you then. I know nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh as a human for the willing is present in me. I desire to always obey 100% of the time, but I don't. Uh, The doing of the good is not, verse 19, for the good that I want to do and please God, I don't do. I always wanna I wanna love for me it'd be I wanna love my family and love my wife hundred percent of the time. Ah, doesn't happen. For the good that I want to do, I don't do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. He lists acts of commission and omission, by the way. Verse 20, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So no good thing dwells in me. Sin lives in me. Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. That is true of every person in this room. You have evil living in you. I have evil living in me. Man is not by nature good. Man by nature is not neutral. When man is born, he's not a clean slate. We are evil to the core. That's what Paul said. This is who I am. Verse 22 But I, I can have joy because I'm saved, saved by Jesus. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So do you, as a Christian, do you feel conflicted like there's a civil war going on in your soul and in your mind? If you say yes, that is a good thing. That is validation that you know God. You're a child of God. You're convicted by sin. You hate it. You despise it. You want nothing to do with it. So this is a good thing. Your thinking resonates with Paul. Conflicted in the soul. Your conscience is not seared. You're not content with where you are. You want to shake the shackles of sin. That's why I said I see a different law and I can joyfully concur with God and the inner man and I see a different law in the members of my body waging war. Verse 24, and finally just kind of throws his hands up and, oh, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. That's how every single one of us as a Christian should feel when we are convicted by the reality of sin in our life. Wretched woman that I am. Wretched child that I am. Wretched pastor that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. Paul knows the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ and Him alone. His sacrificial death on my behalf that I have embraced. He has saved me. I am born again. I'm a child of God. I'm no longer spiritually dead. There is the answer. Legal, total forgiveness now. Physical, literal forgiveness forever in the future upon death, upon the resurrection body. Verse 25. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving The law of God. I know what's true. I know what Scripture says. I know what is right. But on the other hand, practically in my life as a fallen sinner, I'm serving my flesh at times because of this principle of sin, the sin that lives in me. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. There is no judgment. There is no punishment for sin. There is no eternal hell. There's no retribution or accountability for your sin in the next life in heaven. That's what it means. There is therefore now no condemnation or punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? You know what that means? When you get to heaven as a Christian, and you enter into the splendor and the glories of heaven, one thing that is not going to happen is this huge, massive, largest, hi-fi television screen you've ever seen in your life where all the sins of the past are going to be put up on that TV screen for all the world of all of history and all the angels to see all the gross sins you've ever committed in your life and everybody points at it and says hey look what he did in his lifetime that will not happen if you're a Christian saved by Jesus Christ your sins are totally forgiven blotted out cast away from God as far as the east is from the west and there is no condemnation or punishment for any sin you ever committed in your life because Jesus paid the penalty for all of it isn't that amazing that is good News. That is reason to celebrate and praise God and thank Him. Because the older you get, the more sins you amass in your life. You become a professional sinner. I know I do. God becomes a greater and greater Savior the older I get. The flood of Jesus' forgiving blood becomes more and more overwhelming the older I get. Because the older I get, the more sins I commit. And you can't, if you're a Christian, you can't outsend God's forgiveness. That's what Romans says. It's just greater reason to praise God for His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness For in Christ, forgiving us of all of our sins. And we didn't deserve any of it. We didn't earn any of it. This is just the goodness of God. Christians are free from the penalty of sin, but not the presence of sin. That remains to be done in the future. And then finally, number nine, in light of this conflict going on in the soul, a sign of spiritual maturity is a growing hatred of your own personal sin. It is not uncommon for people to come to me for counseling or prayer and say, uh, Pastor, I feel yucky or depressed about the bad things going on in my life. I feel yucky. I feel guilty. I, I don't say, well, that's bad. Actually, it's well, that's good. That's good. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin, apparently has exposed it, identified it, and, wants, and is helping you to repent of it so you can be forgiven. Guilt is a good thing. It's a tool. It's a gift given by God. And we need to respond to it properly. And so... One sign of spiritual maturity is as you get older as a Christian and walk in the faith, you hate more and more your own personal sin. That's not a bad thing. Because it makes you look more and more forward to heaven and being with Jesus and being unshackled from this body of death. So that's one way to monitor your spiritual growth. In light of that, just a couple of practical things to think about in light of these truths regarding our own sin and then we'll go ahead and partake of communion after a song in, in light of these truths of our biography as sinners I'd say examine yourself examine yourself regarding your sin before you go examining everybody else's sins and faults examine your own sin first and continually i need to do the same after that have sober judgment about yourself romans 12 says don't think too highly of yourself you you ain't so hot Neither am I. We're lowly, pathetic sinners. That's what we are. Don't think more highly of yourself than you are. That's what Paul said. Think with sober judgment. Confess daily your sin. Every Christian should have a confessional component to their life. What does that mean? We should be confessing sin every single day of our life. Maintenance every day. Okay, God, when did? When did I sin yesterday, this morning, last night, conversations with people? God, I lay it before you. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. Continue to confess your sin. If you do, you will be cleansed and washed. I know Christians who have told me uh, they don't need to confess their sins because all their sins have been forgiven at the cross. No, you need to continually confess your sin to be cleansed and get your feet washed by Jesus. So don't get a bitter, hardened heart and be presumptuous towards God. Confess your sin every single day. Uh, Another one, be gracious towards other sinners. Be gracious towards other sinners. That's Colossians chapter 3. Forgive others for their sin in light of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sin and forgiven me of my sin. My sins against Jesus were much more heinous and offensive than that person's sins against you, yet Jesus has forgiven you. Um, And then finally, thank God and the Lord Jesus Christ for saving you if you're a Christian and forgiving, ongoing forgiveness of sin that He continually promises and does provide. What a gracious, great, merciful God that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to Him. Father, we do thank You for time in the Word, time to fellowship, and thank You for the reminders about sin. It's a horrible reality, and yet You've given the greatest solution in reality in the world, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the Lamb of God, for dying and being punished for sinners, for raising yourself from the dead, and for seeking and saving sinners. Give you the glory and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, Other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.